running gave me a chance to get some confidence back. It literally was one of the things that I feel saved my life and, and brought me out of such a deep, dark hole that I couldn't have honestly cared less how fast I was or how I looked doing it. I just was so grateful to be there. That was Heather Giffen, and this is episode 21 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Heather Giffen is a 41-year-old speech-language pathologist, business owner, wife, and mother of two boys from Napanee, Ontario, and she also happens to be one of my BFFs. I've watched running play different roles throughout Heather's life, most notably how it helped her move through postpartum depression after giving birth to both of her children. Running shifted from being about performance to being about joy. This conversation is raw and real. Heather shares how her entry into motherhood was anything but what the Hallmark cards promised, how she came to terms with going on medication, what it means to be an obliger, and how she leveraged this tendency to propel her in regular clothes and her friend wearing full-on fire gear across the finish line of the 2019 Scotiabank Toronto Waterfront Marathon. While it might have been easier to stay quiet about her mental health challenges, Heather is not one to shy away from difficult things. She chose to speak with us today in the hopes that it helps even one other person to feel less alone. And now on to this very important conversation with my friend, Heather Giffen. Heather Giffen, it is an absolute pleasure to welcome you to the Inspired Souls podcast. Thanks so much for making the time to be with us tonight. Oh, thank you for having me, guys. I'm so proud of both of you for starting this podcast. I'm enjoying it so much, and I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, yay. Well, Kim and I are really, really excited to dive into your running story because I have a feeling that we're going to get into some topics with you that we haven't covered with anyone yet. But I wanted to give the listeners a bit of a backstory on how we know each other. And when I started to think about this, I realized that that could be the entire podcast. <laughs> so I'm going to give you my best attempt at the Coles notes of how Heather and I know each other. So we met in university. We both went to McMaster University where we studied kinesiology and worked at the gym. Big shout out to the Pulse. And uh, I remember you coming back one September, maybe it was your third year or something, and you told me that you were dating Grant Giffen. And it blew my mind because Grant Giffen went to Brock University, but Grant and I went to high school together in Brockville, which was like four hours away from Hamilton. And we were like buds. We were kind of like math geeks and jocks a little bit, the two of us. So we had special connection, Grant and I. But anyhow, the two of you had met at your summer job that summer. And that was kind of serendipitous because Grant had been let go from working at my dad's company. Yes. <laughs> so credit at your father and his non-hiring of my husband <laughs> to our happy marriage. <laughs> Which is so, so funny. So anyhow, we lost touch a little bit after university, but you and Grant end up moving to PEI and getting engaged right near where my husband grew up. Yes. And then you settled in Belleville around 2004 at the same time that Johnny and I were posted to Trenton and we settled in Belleville in 2004. Didn't know that you lived there. Yeah. And I find out through the grapevine that you and Grant live there. And the grapevine turned out to be my twin brother's girlfriend at the time, who you and I both knew from McMaster. And yeah. she was one of your bridesmaids. And she and my twin brother met in Northern Ontario, completely independent of us. So Correct. Yeah. fast forward, we live there for the next 12 years. We become besties. We do everything together, including having our firstborns within four months of each other. They're now teenagers, still BFFs, yes. even though they haven't lived in the same city since 2016. And I am the godmother to your yes. second born. Does that pretty much sum it up? Yes. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> you did well, Carolyn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, okay, well, what are the high level points here? So that's sort of a little background. So Heather and I, just to sum it up, we know each other quite well. But Heather, why don't you give our listeners a high level intro of who you are and where are you speaking to us from and what do you do for work? What's your family situation now? 
Sure. So I am coming at you from Napanee, Ontario, which is about 45 minutes west of Kingston. And I am a speech language pathologist. So although Carolyn and I both did our undergrads in kinesiology, she went the physiotherapy route and I ended up doing my master's and becoming a speech path. So I have worked at that job for the last 16 years. I love what I do. I, for the past two years, have been full-time running a private practice, and I work a lot with children on the autism spectrum and also with kids who are struggling with literacy. So those are my two passions. I have a wonderful husband who I'm sure got his start in life by being good friends with Carolyn in high school. (laughs) Oh, come on. You're just saying that. (laughs) Oh, stop. And yes, as Carolyn mentioned, we have two boys. 13 and 10. And the oldest has literally been best friends with Carolyn's oldest since the day they were born. We have pictures of them uh, a couple weeks old together, and uh, they really haven't strayed from that friendship since. I think they're talking on FaceTime right now, actually. It's it's more likely than not. Yeah. (laughs) So take us back to the beginning, your intro to running. When did you first fall in love with the sport? For sure. So I was trying to think of a good analogy here about just how tiny I was when I was in elementary school, but I was very small and also very uncoordinated. So I was thinking back to several recesses in my grade four, five, six years where we used to play Red Rover. Do you remember this game? Mm -hmm. How was this game allowed? I'd like to know. But I (laughs) I was the kid who always got called first in Red Rover, which required that I run across the field and voluntarily close the line myself pretty much. Um, But also during that time, I did discover that whenever I entered a track and field event that was longer than 800 meters, I was one of the only people who seemed to be able to finish it. So that was where I got my start in cross country and longer distance track. And that carried on into high school for me. So tell us a little bit more about your experience with track and cross country in high school. Yeah, so I know a few people that you've interviewed so far really talked about their coaches, and I I would have to say that I'll do the same. I really had two exceptional high school coaches, uh, Peter Peart and Derek Spafford, both of whom are still in my life over 20 years later. Uh, Derek is a legend in Canadian running. He is continuing uh, a consecutive running streak right now that I believe began on Christmas Day in 1989. So when I knew him in the mid nineties, he was sort of six, seven years into that streak. I didn't realize, you know, as a self-centered teenager, what a big deal that was. But the fact that he's continued that over the next, you know, 25 years is, is nothing short of incredible. Wow. Yeah. When I think back to my time on the cross country and track teams in high school, those two men just, they really invested in our team as people. Uh, They really wanted to see us excel as runners, obviously, but also as human beings. And, you know, I can remember times at uh, Peter's Cottage where he would have the whole team up. I can remember just, again, when you're in high school, I don't think I really realized the time and the effort that they dedicated to us as budding adults, young adults. But just, you know, the, the days they that Derek took off work to be with us at meets and the distance that they traveled in their own vehicles to get us here and there and everywhere. And I'm so blessed and grateful to both of them for the start that they gave me in what has become really a lifelong hobby and passion for me. Was Derek a, a teacher at the school? No. So Derek actually became involved in our team because he was close friends with a family by the last name of Murphy. And there were four Murphy boys, uh, Charlie, Blake, Matt, and Taylor, all of whom were strong runners. And because of the family connection, he came to coach our small Mm, high school during that time. So what was your specialty in high school? What were your distances? Yeah. So other than cross country in track, I was a middle distance runner. So 800 and 1500 meters. And during my last year of high school, so that was a high school was five years at that time. And uh, during my last year, I did make it to the Ontario provincial track meet for the 800 meter and also for cross country. So that was sort of the pinnacle of my high school career. 
That's like the mini Olympics, right? You made it to OFSA? <laughs> I did. <laughs> they call it the mini Olympics. Yes, I did make it to OFSA. And also, um, this will become perhaps ironic as we get further into the conversation and, you know, my my mental health post-children. But I did have some anxiety in high school, although I didn't recognize it. We just called it a nervous tummy back then. But on the start line of OFSA, which is, it's a big race, um, on the start line of OFSA, I actually threw up like an entire bottle of Caterade <laughs> <laughs> on the start line. You're welcome, ladies. <laughs> now, this is where I will interject. We need to do an acronym explanation. What is OFSA? The Ontario Federation of School Athletics Association. It's the culminating provincial event for cross country and track. Okay. So you threw up your whole Gatorade on the start line <laughs> of <Opsa. laughs> and and then how did it go from there? Like, was it just sort of regular race nerves? Like once you settled into the activity, you were good or did it kind of last for the whole duration of the competition? I did not perform well at that race. So I think my race nerves helped me to a point, but uh, in that particular meet, it was beyond that point. So I did not have a good meet that day. I ran my best times in track at this sort of citywide level. And once it got a little higher than that, just my nerves would kind of overtake things. And and I generally underperformed at higher level races, I would say. Okay. So then did you continue running at university? Yeah. So the transition to university was, was another challenge for me. Uh, I was terribly homesick. And um, I did go to the first couple of meetings and practices I had managed in the 1500. I cracked the five minute mark in high school, which was a decent time to hit. But keeping in mind that my perspective was probably somewhat skewed because I was so homesick. I do vividly recall the first university practice I went to. The coaches had instructed us to do a bit of a warm up run through Coots Paradise, which as Carolyn knows, is this incredible, beautiful nature preserve that's right next to the university campus. And in my recollection, the group sort of took off like a shot and it seemed to me that it was sort of this immediate trying to establish kind of a hierarchy of runners from from the get-go. And uh, I was pretty fragile at the time and just felt like it wasn't for me. So I didn't go back that year. And as it turns out, a few weeks into my first year, I actually contracted mono and was pretty much out of it for the next three to four months. I slept almost all the time. So that was, that was the end of my first year university running career. Yeah. And, and then you didn't return to it at university in other years, like that experience of just like, oh, I don't belong here. Or, or is was that your experience? I don't want to put words in your mouth. It was. As you know, Carolyn, even um, to this day, I really, I'm not that competitive of an individual. And one of the things I love most about running is the social part of it. So many of my close friends are runners and I love sharing successes. I love when I can share my successes with them. I love when they can share their successes with me. And I just didn't feel like I was cut out for a cutthroat kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. It's just not who I am as a runner. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I totally get that. <laughs> that yeah. does not sound like a healthy environment, like especially when, you know, first year and you've got all these other transitions that you're dealing with, you were sick and, you know, it just doesn't sound like the environment that you were going to thrive in there. Yeah, it wasn't. So I did stay, as you know, mentioned in the intro, Carolyn, we both worked at the gym. So I did stay active during my university career and um, the the roommate slash bridesmaid that you were mentioning before, Alia, was my roommate all through university and is a very active individual. So we were always rollerblading. I think I'm dating myself when I say rollerblading. <laughs> hey, man, I still rock a pair of rollerblades. So, you know. I think I still have mine. <laughs> Actually, I can find to my son. He uses them now. <laughs> There's a lot of rollerblading happening. Uh, lots of hiking and walking. And I did still run. I just ran for myself. Mm-hmm. So you ran through high school, you ran through, well, a bit in university, yeah. and then somewhere along the way, you got married, had two kids. I did. And running came back into your life in a significant way after the birth of your second child, so I'm told. Can you tell us a bit about that story? 
I can. So I'll back up a little bit just to when I was pregnant with my first child. So up until that point, honestly, I really had not faced that much adversity in my life. Um, school was pretty easy for me. I have a great relationship with my family. I have and did have excellent friends. Um, but my personality is quite type A, bit of a control freak. And during pregnancy, I had, you know, read all the books, I'd flagged the nap schedules and the eating schedules and the pooping schedules. And I really anticipated that my success as a mother was going to be due to the fact that I could, you know, prepare the shit out of motherhood, just like it was some kind of boardroom presentation. Um, and what actually happened to me was that after the birth of my first son, within about 24 hours, my body's ability to sort of regulate the hormonal changes that happen when you birth your placenta in particular, uh, it just went sort of haywire. So um, I can remember my midwife, whom I respect greatly, looking at me even before I left the hospital and saying, you know, are you feeling okay? And literally within a day or two, I, I felt like a total shell of a person. Uh, I really sort of completely lost my sense of self. Um, my, my postpartum experience, which is of course unique to me. And, and I know that every woman who, who struggles or doesn't has a different experience, but uh, mine was that I really lost the ability to get any kind of sleep. So within three or four days post the birth of my first son, I was in pretty rough shape. I wasn't sleeping at all. I wasn't eating. I had a lot of adrenaline running through my veins, so highly anxious. And I can actually remember I was in bed, sort of like in a spooning position, and my mom was behind me and my husband Grant was in front of me and they were pressing up against me like some kind of sandwich, just trying to get my body to stop shaking. Wow. Um, so it, it was a bit of a bit of a rough start for me, to say the least. And I mean, I was way more removed than your mom or Grant, but it was a frightening time. You yeah. were not yourself. Like it was very, very clear that you were struggling and it was... Um, like, I'm sure I, I just can't imagine because I never did experience anything like that uh, postpartum myself, but um, I felt helpless as a friend. Yeah, I think we've talked a number of times, Carolyn, that I think the first time I left the house, my mom pretty much had to move in with us. I was very attached to my husband who had to go to work a couple of days after I gave birth. And I, I really didn't want to see anybody except for my mom and my husband. And uh, I think the first time I left the house was to come over to your house, Carolyn. By that point, Trevor was a couple of months old and um, they were sort of side by side in a, in a playpen, I think. And you looked at Trevor and you said, it's so hard and, you know, we're not sleeping and, um, you know, breastfeeding is hard. But when you look at him, don't you just love him so much? And I remember thinking in my head, I don't feel that way about my child. And it was a very defining moment for me, realizing that it was maybe something that I was going to need some help to get through. Uh, I really did not feel a connection at all with my child. I just don't think my body was in a place where I could think of much else other than just sort of getting through the next hour. How long did that last? Yeah, so... Um, one of the things that happened to me that that was a game changer in a good way, a good friend of mine, Kathy, who had been through a divorce in the relatively recent past, came over when Reed was a couple of months old. I was really holding on to uh, the idea that this was going to pass. You know, you hear, oh, baby blues, two weeks, or maybe it's six weeks, or maybe it's two months. And I just kept waiting for these time milestones to go by, and nothing was changing for me. And uh, Kathy came over and, and she looked at me and, and said, you know, I look into your eyes and, you know, I've seen those eyes before when I looked into the mirror, um, you know, when I was going through a hard time, she said, I think you need some help. So I went to my doctor and started uh, taking some medication. And that was really what got me back to, I guess, kind of like ground zero, where I could start actually doing the things that you know you want to do to get yourself out of, out of a depression. Um, just things like eating healthy, exercising. I couldn't even contemplate those things. I just didn't have it in me. So I really 
when I'm explaining my experience, talk about how, you know, medication dug me out of a hole just to get me to uh, a starting point so that I could start doing some of the things that, that I knew would, would keep me healthy in the longer term. So you went on the medication, you started to feel like yourself after a few months? I did, yeah. Yeah. And then talk to us about like sort of from there, like were you running much in there? And then when you became pregnant with Quinn, mm-hmm. uh, talk to us about kind of like the planner in you and what you did to <laughs> to prevent um, a second postpartum depression. Oh, yes. Oh, planner Heather went into overtime during my second pregnancy. (laughs) So I knew that the chances of this happening to me again were definitely increased based on my first experience. Uh, But again, I was, I was quite sure that I was going to beat the odds on that one. So um, I had seen a naturopath and done all of the things that she had suggested. And I was still working with my doctor to find a medication plan that was going to work for me during pregnancy and into postpartum. I didn't run a lot, actually, between the time when my first and second were born. But after my second was born, uh, I had a very similar experience. So unfortunately, again, it was literally within uh, about 6 to 12 hours after Quinn was born. And that time, I think it was worse for me because I recognized what was happening and I knew what it was going to take to get through it. Mm-hmm. That time we actually did end up in the emergency room when Quinn was about three days old. Uh, we had a pretty awful experience actually in the first emergency room that we went to. I like to tell this story not to to place blame on anybody, but to say that it's such an important thing when women are saying that they're struggling that you listen. I know that my midwife had called ahead to the emergency room and said, you know, Heather is coming in. This this isn't a joke. You need to take her seriously. But when we arrived, we waited in the emergency waiting room for hours. I was bawling the whole time. Um, and when we finally got into the room, the doctor basically told me that my lack of sleep was the main was the main immediate problem. And she had said that she would give me a pill that would knock me out, but I would have to stop breastfeeding and I couldn't start again. And at that point, breastfeeding was one of the only things that really made me feel like I was a good mom. I felt like a failure in pretty much every other way. And I was really adamant that I did not want to stop breastfeeding. So thankfully, I really feel like this was one of the things that that saved my life was because I had my husband and my parents who were there and and could do the thinking for me that I wasn't capable of at that time. We literally got in the car, drove to Kingston, which was the next major city, and went straight to the emergency room there. And uh, one of the defining moments of that night was we walked into the waiting room. A triage nurse saw me. She said, oh, sweetheart, you need to come with me. She took us into a quiet room and got me a sandwich from the vending machine, Mm -hmm. which seems like the stupidest little thing, but you know, here we are 10 years later, and I'll never forget that sandwich because it was a gesture of kindness that I really needed at that moment. And the doctor we met at that hospital just said the word plan. Do you need a plan? Yeah, I need a plan. And she said, we won't let you leave here until we have one. So I didn't, you know, I didn't need that problem to be solved that night. I knew it would take time, but having a plan was, was what I needed. And we left with one. And uh, that was the beginning of the road to recovery for me for the second time. Wow. So backing up, what was it that triggered you to go to the ER? What was the, the, the big thing that sent you there in the first place? Yeah, I think, um, again, it was, it was for me the lack of sleep. And uh, when it was happening the second time with Quinn, the anxiety was so much higher, again, thinking forward to how we were going to get through this. And um, my my family had started really questioning me about whether I was going to take action. So they were concerned for my life. So was it their initiative to take you to the hospital or, or did you reach a point where you said, I need help, let's go? Yeah, I think it was a combination. Sorry. I think it was a combination of both. I knew in my heart of hearts that I didn't want my life to end. 
I knew I wanted to be a mom to my boys, but I just remember thinking I have to get out of my body. I can't spend another minute in this body. It was just a very painful experience to just feel like your whole sense of self had drained out of you. So I think I had enough sense to know that when that was suggested that, that it's something that I should go along with, you know, thankfully it, it turned out well for me, but, but I do often think about what would have happened to someone who didn't have the support system that I had, had they gone to the hospital and, and essentially been turned away the way that I was. I worry Mm -hmm. about that. Yeah. And I know between you and your midwife, there were some positive changes that actually took place at the initial hospital that you went to. And perhaps we can talk about that in just a second. But what message do you have for anyone listening who might be suffering with postpartum depression or has a loved one who is struggling with it? Yeah, I think... um... Just to honor your experience and know that there's every imperfect way to get your start with your children. And um, what happened to me and and what happens to other women is not, it's not about fault. It's not about failure. It's about chemicals and hormones. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my, my road to recovery was, was long. It's a, it's a tough road, especially when you're someone who really wants to be in control of your own life. It was hard for me to admit, for example, that I would probably need to be on medication for the rest of my life. Um, that's something that I've come to terms with now and I'm fine with. But just to honor your experience, to reach out and to accept help. When Reed, my firstborn, was a few days old, my best friend from childhood, Julie, drove all the way from Toronto to Belleville, where we lived at the time, to meet him. And I was so distraught that day that I literally could not let her in the door. This is someone I've been best friends with literally my whole life. Uh, and she turned around and drove all the way back to Toronto without seeing me or Reed. And then she just started sending me cards in the mail, probably 30, 40 over the first year. Things like that meant so much to me, just knowing that someone was there for me and didn't care that I had, you know, turned her away and didn't care that I wasn't myself. And um, so, you know, if you, if you are around someone who is going through that, and it's hard to be a good friend when you're sick. And um, what I learned was that my friends would carry me while I couldn't do it myself. And hopefully Mm -hmm. later, I would have the chance to give that back to them. Oh, and 1000% you have, but I, this just reminds me of, we just interviewed someone named Melanie and Melanie talked about how people are not comfortable when other people aren't like happy and, and everything going well, right? What have you learned in the way that you treat other people when they're in discomfort, when they're having a hard time? Like, has this really played into how you are as a friend when you're capable of being the friend that you want to be? To, to your friends? Has it changed the way that you think about being with somebody in their own discomfort? I think so. And and I have said before that it's the one silver lining for me of having gone through uh, really such a traumatic experience is that I feel like I've been in the trenches a little bit now. Actually, my relationship with my dad is something that changed a lot during that time. He was someone who suffered from a great deal of anxiety and depression when I was growing up. I didn't recognize it so much at the time, but I really felt that our bond was strengthened during that time because he really got where I was coming from. We joke because the day that we went to the hospital in Kingston, I had stayed over there and got up the next morning. And of course, I was still a mess. And I came out into the living room with no shirt on, no bra, and I was dripping (laughs) breast milk. And my father was sitting there. This is not a normal (laughs) thing that I would have done. And... uh, so after that experience, we joked that he's, you know, not only a, a dad, but also a lactation consultant. <laughs> but, but yeah, I do feel like I have more empathy for people who are struggling. And, um, you know, I just try to be there as any of us would in, in whatever challenges they're going through. And um, just re- trying to remember the little things that made such a difference to me. So, you know, the walks that we went on, Carolyn, or those cards that I received, um, 
Grant, bless his heart, we took pretty much every Hallmark card that we had gotten saying, you know, congratulations, you're going to love your baby so much and everything's going to change for the best. And we literally burned them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We burned them because it was, I was so angry at those Hallmark cards for, for telling me what it was going to be like. And, And it just heightened my feelings of how much I had failed when my own experience was so different. Yeah. I imagine that depth of empathy that you gained with that experience has, has really made you that much better of a speech path too, you know, as you work with children and parents and people who've struggled. Yeah. One of our quotes that we have hanging up in our office is, says something like, you know, be kind for everyone is fighting a battle you know nothing about. Mm-hmm. And when we have families who come in and they're short with us or they're upset, just trying to put that in perspective and realizing, you know, the challenges that they may be facing on a daily basis, especially when we work with so many kids who have such high needs. I think it does help me to, to be a more accepting person in my professional role for sure. Wow. So let's go back to that doctor in the second ER that basically gave you exactly what you needed, which was the word plan. What was the plan? I'm curious to hear what was the plan. And then I'm quite suspicious that running became part of the plan. So if you could tell us a bit about what were the next steps there? Yeah. So the plan, um, in addition to medication, the plan was for me to get a few uninterrupted hours of sleep, which as we know is a big ask as a as a mom of a newborn, but we had decided right away that we were willing to do one formula feed in a 24 hour span. So I would try to stay up until 10 or 11, go to bed and either Grant or my mom would do the first feed. And usually with a large fan running so that I couldn't hear, (laughs) that would get me four or five hours of sleep continuously each night, which really got me on the road to recovery. But it was about maybe four months when Quinn was about four months old, It was actually my father-in-law, who is, as Carolyn knows, a man of very few words, uh, who was chatting with me about my experience a little bit and said, you know what, I think you need to run. And uh, I thought, you know what, I think I do. So I reached out to Derek Spafford, who again was my high school coach, and um, told him that I wanted to run and I wanted to do something that would really make me feel like a person again. So instead of signing up for a 5K, which a normal person would do, I decided to train and run uh, for the Great Wall Half Marathon in China. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Which seemed like the next logical thing (laughs) to do. So uh, I did. When Quinn was nine months old, Grant and I flew to China for six days. And I ran a half marathon, which was my first half marathon on the Great Wall of China. So why China? What was it about the Great Wall that attracted you? Oh, why not China, Kim? Um, well, <laughs> this, you are this, talking to an ultra runner. So <laughs> I get that, but <laughs> I think you would have actually liked this course because I did not realize this before I arrived in China. But the great the steps on the Great Wall are very purposely built to be uneven heights. And the reason for that is that when when invaders were invading, whatever invaders do, uh, they wanted them to not be able to run quickly on the wall. So they very purposefully made them uneven and difficult to navigate, which is a great strategy for invaders, but not such a great strategy for runners. Um, So there was a bit of sort of technicality to it. But uh, I had hooked up with a program that was running in Ontario at the time called Joints in Motion, which was a program through the Arthritis Society whereby people would raise money for charity and train to run an international marathon or half marathon. So that is what I did and completed that half marathon. I actually remember, this is how tough that course was, that I believe only one female went under two hours on that course. Wow. It was a, it was a challenging one. I think there's about 5,100 steps on the course, both the half and the, uh, and it was a thrill obviously to, to be there and to do that. That was a huge step to my recovery starting that year. And, and for many years following, I had a, 
a magazine, a page out of a magazine that I had torn out and placed above my desk at work. And it was a shoe ad and it said running releases more than just sweat. And for me, that was so true in my recovery that I really just needed to run to clear my head and maintain my mental health. I've often experienced with myself and I've seen it in others that when you're in a dark place, (laughs) That's when you tend to pick the toughest, most punishing races. (laughs) It's like you need that to mirror, you know, the depth of wherever you're at in your soul. And then when you can accomplish, like Melanie said, let's go back to Melanie again, do a hard thing that is harder than life. (laughs) It kind of puts it all in perspective a little bit more. Well, that that half marathon experience, I remember it like it was yesterday, that actually inspired me to get into running because was this around 2010? This was two. So Quinn was born in 2010. This would have been 2011. Yeah. 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 Because that's really when I, like you were getting into running and I think you were working with Derek and I, and then I started working with Kevin. It was all right around that time. So you did the great wall. You maybe thought it was like a, a one and done thing, but it launched you into another half marathon for sure. So can you tell us a little bit about the team and training one? For sure. So another reason why I chose this event, and I also will end up mentioning this later, I think, because my favorite book um, has to do with, with this idea, but Carolyn and I are obsessed with this happiness researcher by the name of Gretchen Rubin or G. Rue. We love her so much. We've named her. But <laughs> one of the things that, that Gretchen Rubin has investigated is how people respond to inner and outer expectations. And uh, there are sort of four categories of people. And I am a diehard, what she calls obliger, which means that I respond very well to outer expectations, but not very well to expectations, you know, that I set for myself. So as an example, I'm not a great New Year's resolution holder. But this Great Wall Marathon and joining this this team and having this very public fundraising goal made it very doable for me because I had told so many people about it. And once I had told those people about it, there was no way I could let everybody down. So after the event, I decided that I wanted to give back because that event had played such a big part in my journey to healing. So I rejoined that joints in motion organization as a volunteer trainer, as a coach for other groups who were coming behind me and doing their own international half marathon and marathons. So I did that for about 18 months. And uh, then I had the opportunity to accompany a group to Tamarindo in Costa Rica, where I ran officially another half marathon, but because I was running back and forth, trying to catch different groups of people. I think I covered uh, between 37 and 38 kilometers that day. Oh, and that run, I just forgot about this until right now. That's the only time I've ever been so tired. I went into a porta potty, peed, and then thought, oh, that's wet. And I looked down and I'd forgotten to lift the seat on the porta potty. Oh my goodness. (laughs) I thought you were going to say you fell asleep in the porta potty. (laughs) Me too. Oh, that's awesome. Oh my goodness. So funny. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So this was all like though, back in 2011, 2012. Yes. Have you carried on with running since then? Yes. So as you know, Carolyn, uh, around, I'm not sure what year it was that Kevin, your brother started running wild. 2012. (laughs) But Oh my goodness. Did we ever have a great group of runners there? So that was probably actually, those years were really the pinnacle of my running career in terms of performance. Kevin was such an incredible coach. For me, he worked as a coach because uh, he was like a little bit terrifying. And um, I, I just, I just wanted- The obliger in you responded oh, well to- I just really wanted to make sure that I was on his good side and, and doing what he wanted me to be doing. But Carolyn, that was really where you and I started to- deepen our friendship because we were spending so much time together uh, on the trails and on the roads. And um, I focused a lot during that time on 5Ks, 10Ks. I think I ran another half in there somewhere. But really, again, for me, just the social camaraderie of that group was was so incredible. We had just a really tight-knit bunch. Mm -hmm. So how does your, you know, how did that time in your life of running compared to when you were in high school? 
comparing, like you said, you felt you were at the pinnacle of your running career as far as performance in 2012. Compare that to high school. Yeah. So in high school, you know, I really was focused on, um, on what I could do and what I might be capable of. And uh, during the time I was running with Kevin's group, my shift in, in running really went to, during that time, for me especially, just sort of rebuilding my sense of self. I really felt during the postpartum period, I had lost so much confidence in, in who I was and what I was capable of. And, you know, one of the jobs that, that women are supposed to be naturally good at is, is being a mom. And I really felt like I had failed in that regard that, that I wasn't a natural mother. I don't feel like that now, but at the time I did. And running gave me a chance to get some confidence back. It gave me a chance to do something for myself that was good for my physical health and my mental health. It just has represented another shift. I've, I've since sort of had another shift in, in how I view running and the role that it plays in my life. As Carolyn knows, kind of my, my three-letter mantra now for, for running in my life is joy. I really don't do anything anymore that doesn't spark joy in terms of running. I sign up for races that I think are going to be fun and crazy, and uh, I run with friends whom I love, and I don't give a hoot about how fast or slow I run. I almost never run with a watch. I just do it because I can, and I feel blessed that I can, and I love it. Yes, I love this so much. So we're talking like sort of 20 12 to 2016 is when we were in the group with Kevin, right? And then in 2016, I moved very shortly after that, like early 2017, you moved from Belleville to Napanee. So you lost that group as well. Yeah. And and so talk to us about that transition, because I believe running kind of took a back seat in those years, didn't it? Sort of 2017, 18, when you were getting established in Napanee and you started your own practice and running sort of fell off and then came back into your life in 2019. So can you talk about those years? For sure. So you're right in saying that running took a bit of a backseat. I was still running a little bit on my own. And then at the beginning of 2019, a friend of mine, Joe Reed, who was also my chiropractor, came to me and said that he was going to do this crazy thing, which was to run the Toronto Scotiabank Waterfront Marathon in October 2019. Uh, dressed in full firefighter gear, including helmet and, you know, full length shirt and rubberized pants or whatever they are and steel toed boots. And he was going to try to beat the Guinness record for (laughs) a marathon in full firefighting gear, which was, Um, Oh, the record. Yeah. Excellent question. 341. I think. (laughs) Did he have um, a mask on too? Oh, the full, not a mask, but the full helmet. Yes. I believe it was about seven pounds of gear, um, but he might correct me on that. But so again, as an obliger, this is my dream, right? (laughs) Somebody, somebody's asking me to do something for them. This is like, this is my happy place. Kim, it actually made me think, I know, I believe it was your friend, Sarah, that you interviewed and she had said, you know, she went into this race and it didn't go well for her because she was doing it for somebody else. And I remember listening to that episode and thinking, oh, we're opposites. <laughs> that was actually me. Oh, it was I did you. It there you go. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> so the only reason this would work for me is if I was doing it for somebody else. <laughs> so that's what I did, guys. I trained. Uh, my first training run, actually, for the marathon was in Winnipeg with Carolyn. We oh, happened yeah. to be out that weekend visiting, which was fantastic. A great way to kick it off. And uh, I did. I trained with this crazy person who ran all of our, he ran every single training run in the gear because oh he gosh. wanted to be sure that he could do it. So, through the uh, summer? <laughs> summer in full gear. Uh, and oh my gosh, that marathon was the most fun. I have such great memories. I enjoyed the whole experience. And, and that was, you know, sort of that shift again, that I had really shifted my mindset from competition to joy. And when that happened, you know, I had no pre-race nerves, nothing. I have um, a very clear memory of, oh, by the way, I ran a terrible marathon. My pacing was all over the place. (laughs) I did not care. 
Um, my husband was there. We had stayed overnight and um, I didn't see him until about 41 kilometers. So it was very close to the finish line by the time he managed to catch a glimpse of me. And my husband, also a man of very few words and dislikes nothing more than when he draws attention to himself, had our weekender suitcase that he was dragging by the handle. He hopped a barricade, jumped onto the course with me, dragging the wheelie suitcase and started <laughs> running with me toward the finish line, screaming at me to go, go, go. And it was probably the most romantic thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> You know what? As you said that, that's exactly what I thought. I thought, oh my goodness, that's that's just so romantic. It was. It, I mean, only a runner would think that that's romantic, but let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I was going to ask if you were running with your friend in the fire suit, but I'm guessing not. We decided um, to run our own races. He had a very specific race plan that he wanted to follow. Uh, I just wanted to kick it back and see what happened. And uh, he did finish about five minutes ahead of me, which is incredible. I think he ran about 4.08 and I ran something like 4.13. But this, I mean, this guy. A couple of years before, Joe um, is a huge Tragically Hip fan. And and um, the year that Gordowney passed away, he ran the same marathon dressed in the outfit that Gore Downey wore at his final concert, Aww. carrying mm -hmm. a guitar on his back and pumping tragically hip tunes the whole way. And he Aww. actually made the front page of the Toronto Star the day after the <laughs> marathon, which is a really big deal. It's like the biggest newspaper in Ontario. So um, he's a wild man. And um, we are hoping to do the race again this year, actually which I've just started training for under Carolyn's guidance. And I will continue to do um, marathons for as long as I feel like they will bring me joy. Aww. Is that your favorite distance? Do you think the marathon or do you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Tell me more. Yeah. I mean, I only have done it once, so I can't say that I loved the training runs. Um, but there is something pretty special about a marathon, just the presence of spectators. I mean, of course, this is all pre-COVID, but the presence of spectators on the course, the joy of running through different neighborhoods and seeing, you know, I mean, it really puts things in perspective. I was getting passed by ladies who had to be well into their 60s. I got passed by a Viking and I was like, <laughs> how is this possible? Um, it was just so much fun. So this is your big thing that you're training for now is another marathon in October. But I also happen to know that you are a race director for a wicked community 5K in Napanee that runs every June, except yes. for last year. Do you have any info as to whether that race will go this year? So we have been chatting about doing some kind of virtual challenge this year. This was another way for... Me and a good running friend of mine, Aaron Gregory, and uh, a local gym owner, Trisha Kamert, to to bring our thanks and our love of physical fitness and how it can contribute to wellness back to our small community of Napanee. So yeah, we started the Napanee Heritage Race in uh, 20, gosh, 2014, 2015, and focused on a 5K course that, that took runners past some heritage landmarks, historic landmarks in our little town. We have a, a really great kids one miler that we usually get upwards of 80 to 100 kids and it makes me cry every year. Um, we have kids as young as three. We have participants who are over 80 doing the 5k and it's you know, it's just one of those fantastic little events where I end the day with no energy and no voice. And I'm just so blissfully happy to, to see people come out and, and enjoy our sport together. It's more than a little event. Like even the, the first year you did it, I think 2015, it was like hundreds of people came out. I think I volunteered the first year and it was like, probably the best 5k I had ever experienced like it was that well organized like just so so many people came out and got involved and the course was beautiful it was a great time of the year I think it's Father's Day right around yeah. there so oh my goodness it's just I'm so glad that it is still going on because it's just such a gift to your community so kudos to the three of you 
Thank you. Thank you. I mean, again, it's the it's the type A coming back <laughs> that we are, you know, three pretty driven and, and organized women. And um, we feel very, very well supported by our, our little community. And um, every year we fundraise and give back 100% of the profits that we make. And every year it goes to some type of initiative in our little town that either promotes physical or mental wellness for the community members. So we're pretty proud of that. You know, as, as I hear you talk about the marathon, running for joy, the, the 5K, you use the words blissfully happy. And mm-hmm. one of our questions was, how is your mental health now? <laughs> and um, yeah. I, it sounds like you, you do have a fair amount of joy and happiness in your life now. Now, is that a steady state? Do you still struggle at all? Or like, where are you at now? So I'm doing really well now. It was a long process. Um, Getting kind of my chemical stuff sorted out was uh, something that happened relatively quickly over a number of months, I mean. But the loss of sort of your sense of who you thought you are is the part that took me a lot longer. It was really hard uh, and took a lot of years and a lot of counseling to work through my feelings of failure as a mom and feeling like, you know, especially in the role that I'm in as a speech pathologist and and how much we talk about, you know, the, the importance of those early months and those early years and just, um, you know, I had a lot of panic around not being able to get that time back and wondering if that was going to have long-term impacts on, on the health of my children. But I am in a good place now. I have recognized that, I require some medication to stay healthy, and I rely on my husband to be a bit of a barometer for me. I tend to be someone who loves to schedule things on weekends. Again, this is pre-COVID. Nobody does anything anymore, but um, (laughs) I really rely on him to tell me when I'm taking on too much, and I have learned to listen to him because uh, he is great at, at having some perspective when I sometimes lose that. And uh, it's necessary for me. I don't have the reserves that I used to. So I find I do very well when things are going well. But when, you know, we have bumps in the road, I I take a little longer to bounce back than I used to. Mm -hmm. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, like that's part of learning to live with mental health challenges, right? Is that knowing yourself and being aware and realizing, okay, it's just going to take me a little bit longer. Like, that's all. Like the permission it, slip. Yeah. 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 And obviously anything that we practice, we get better at, right? So, you know, every time there are challenges, which like 2020, hello, you had lots of them, you know, it gives you that practice to go, okay, like check in with yourself, like check in with Grant and like, okay, where am I at type of thing? Mm-hmm. So do you find that's yeah. getting easier? I do. I do find that it's getting easier. And um, I'll speak for a second too about as, as a private practice owner now who has, you know, several other people who are on the team, it gives me some great perspective about how I want to lead in that area. So uh, as an example, you know, when our team members came on board and when they, when they signed a contract, you know, we, we just have days, we call them days. They can be sick days. They can be, you know, mental health days. We just call them days. You've got these days, use them whenever you want. And I never would want someone who's working with me to feel like, you know, I just am having a crap day and I want to stay under the covers. That's an acceptable reason to not come into work for me. Um, And I've been there myself and I've taken those days. And so having the opportunity to, to offer that to someone, knowing what I know now about mental health is something I don't think I would have had the same understanding or compassion for before my own experience. I love that. Um, I'm in a position of leadership within a a private practice myself, and I've often thought about that. You know, have I given people permission to use their sick days for all types of illness? Yeah, mental health is is important. Yeah. So um, could we go back just a little bit? You know, we focused the you're running after childbirth largely on the mental health postpartum depression part. But could we just spend a few minutes talking about 
just some of the other challenges that might go with with starting a running program sure. after childbirth. You know, as a physiotherapist, <laughs> um, Carolyn, too, you know, we often see women or I have seen women start back to running sometimes too soon, sometimes with unrealistic expectations of some of the challenges they might face. Did you have any challenges that were more unique that you want to talk about at all? I can't stop laughing. Uh, <laughs> I know. I know it's coming. So, <laughs> so look it. <laughs> when, you, when you push something that big <laughs> out of a tiny little hole, things don't bounce back the way that they should all the time. So I, like many women post-childbirth, I had great issues with peeing myself. And uh, these were particularly noticeable during my running practices. So I do have a quick story to share that, I mean, this was just something that, that happened, you know, two to three times during a workout, Heather would step off to the side, uh, drop her drawers, take a pee and get back on the course. (laughs) And, uh, on one occasion, we had this banker, dear old Gil, who came out for the very first practice, and I will note the very last practice. Um, <laughs> and poor Gil, we were doing hill workouts, and uh, and it was nighttime, so it was dark. And I had run up the hill, gone to the side, dropped my drawers, and was fully peeing when Gil crested the hill. And he looked at me with the most horrified expression on his face. <laughs> And as I said, I, I apologize to Coach Kevin that I think I lost him a member that night because <laughs> Gil just never returned. But um, mysteriously, but he just never came back. <laughs> well, this is the thing: like running downhill, like oh. no, you have to stop, take care of business before yeah. you run downhill. And that's one of the things I love about trail running is there were often great places to pull over and and have a bio break. Yeah, but you learn to wear black. You learn, yes, you do. And actually, I ended up having the most wonderful surgery uh, called a TVT, which is essentially where they put in uh, like a mesh net to stop that problem from happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, After which time, my running, uh, my running partners nicknamed nicknamed me the Iron Vag, uh, (laughs) a nickname which has lasted actually, unfortunately, but. (laughs) but uh, it's just one of the, you know, it's another one of those things that women deal with when they're getting back into a sport that they love. So, well, I know I, I didn't ever struggled with postpartum depression per se. I can confidently say that, but I did struggle with, you know, running. It sounds like to you was, was a hugely positive, almost a salvation type of experience. For me, there was challenges with body image feelings like maybe, let's use the word inadequacy of keeping up with my super fit, non-child toting, you know, stroller pushing friends that um, were a bit of a challenge for me. Did, did you feel any of that or was, was it truly just a purely positive thing for you after you started back to running? Yeah, I will say that once I started back, what running gave to me during that time period was so great that I honestly don't feel like I gave a second thought to, you know, what I, what I looked like doing it. Obviously I didn't give a thought to what I looked like doing it, or I wouldn't have been peeing in front of all those people. But um, yeah, I really, it, it literally was one of the things that I feel saved my life and, and brought me out of such a deep, dark hole that um, I couldn't have honestly cared less how fast I was or how I looked doing it. I, I just was so grateful to be there. Did you run by yourself or did you push a jogging stroller? Never. I never could get into pushing a jogging stroller. And um, for that, I do have to to give credit to my husband. You know, there was a lot of lot of evenings where um, where he was home and I was at running practice. But we've we've always done a pretty good job. I think I only went back to work part time for several years after my kids were born. So I was at home with them a lot during the day. And uh, and he was great about about supporting me with that, knowing that it was so good for for me, both physically and mentally. And that's probably largely really what you needed. You needed me time, I would imagine. Yeah, I did. It's, it's hard to, you know, we're all very good at mummy guilt and, um, you know, very good at finding reasons not to dedicate time to ourselves. But I, 
I guess, used my postpartum depression as a bit of an excuse in a good way to say, no, I really need this. And luckily I had the support behind me so that, so that it could happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you and Grant really are an excellent, excellent team. Huge shout out to Grant here. Uh, Yeah. I'll let him know. All right. So before we move into our five rapid fire questions, we wanted to, we always like to ask everybody uh, who inspires you. I think maybe every running community has these these gems that just need a shout out. But I've mentioned Joe already, who I ran the marathon with. Carolyn, you would be on that list. Absolutely. A few of the local runners that I get to spend time with, my friend Jen, who I run with, I think she maybe missed five, six days of exercise in 2020. She's an absolute, just a workhorse in terms of what she dedicates to exercise and to running. I run with Erin um, Gregory, who is an exceptional runner, one of the co-organizers of the Napney Heritage Race with me in 2020 in indoor track. She was running like a 508-1500. And I think for her age group, she ran the fastest indoor track time in Canada in 2020. I also run with, with a girl named Tammy, who is almost done her six star finisher which is where you run the six major marathons i don't even know them all boston tokyo new york london Uh, and i think she would actually chicago berlin i think she would actually be done that if it hadn't been for covid but she's working on it um and then a guy by the name of jay lloyd who is instrumental in bringing a school team out to our race each year. And he himself is on a running streak of almost coming up on 2000. I think he said, I talked to him today, he's at 1,851 days of running in a row. So, I mean, these are people that live with the exception of you, Carolyn, within five kilometers of me. It's just, I don't know, with running, you just find inspiring people wherever you look. And I'm so grateful to have, you know, another great little community of runners to surround myself with. Amen to that. You do find inspiring people wherever you look, which is one of the reasons we have no shortage of guests for this podcast. (laughs) That's right. I just gave you a couple more you can interview. You did. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Okay, let's move into our rapid fire questions that we always close every episode with. So I will start with asking you your favorite running mantra. Okay, I don't have one, but I did want to say that This was totally unplanned, but in my marathon, I got to about 15 kilometers and I decided to take the idea of kindness meditation, which is where you really focus all your positivity and your thoughts on someone in your life. And I did that for every kilometer of the marathon from 15K to the finish. Uh, So I started with my friend Jenny and as I would run, I would, (laughs) okay, guys, don't judge me. It was, I was tired, but as I would run, I would just think, you know, oh, Jenny, she's so wonderful and I love her. And then the next kilometer would be like, oh, my dad, he's so rad. And just on and on, <laughs> changing it up every kilometer or so. And, and you know, thinking of, of the people in my life and the people who supported me and the people that I loved and the people who I wish could be running with me was, was just a really good way for me to get through a tough experience. That's an amazing one. I'm going to use that one. Love. Do it. All right. Favorite place to run? Oh, this one's, I knew this question was coming because I listened to your podcast. Anywhere on a trail with you, Carolyn. Um, We have had so many amazing chats and life epiphanies and venting sessions on trails. Um, The most memorable of late for me was when we were on, wait, which island was it? Yeah, it it was Hornby or Denman. One of those. Yeah. Yes. We, our husbands took the kids for the day and we went on a gorgeous long trail run that included stopping, swimming in the ocean with seals. And if I could go back there, I would in a heartbeat. That was epic. We have a gorgeous picture from that run. Yes, we do. So do you have a bucket list run? Locally, my bucket list run is to have the chance to organize our little community race again. But I will say that my favorite place I've ever been in the world was in 2018. I traveled to Iceland and I know that there are some great races in Iceland. If I ever had the opportunity to go back, I would love to see what I could do on a course there. I've got to be with you. 
Yes. There's a marathon there, isn't there? There is. A- There's one called the Fire and Ice, I think, too. Yes. And there's a 50K. A 50K. Yeah. Of course there's a 50K. Of course there is. I'll run half of oh, it. Oh, no. It looks amazing. I, I'm with you there. Do you have a favorite running book or movie? So this is where I wanted to bring up Gretchen Rubin, who I mentioned before. It is not a running book or movie, but she wrote a book called Better Than Before, which is about habit formation, which has been life-changing for me, including in the area of running, because it has helped me understand sort of my, she calls them tendencies. So my obliger tendency, which means that I do best when I have those outer expectations. So for example, right now, uh, Carolyn is training me sort of base training for the eventual marathon I'm hoping to run in October and even having, you know, literally a piece of paper that I have to highlight each run on and then texting that to her at the end of the week is enough motivation for me to do it because I know that somebody is going to be looking at that piece of paper. So I would really recommend that book to anyone who is struggling to form or keep positive habits. It's been a life changer for me. I'm going to have to put that on my list. I'm always looking for a new book. Yeah. Okay. Last question. What is your favorite post-run guilty indulgence? Mm, 100% a nap. Yes. So (laughs) I can ride that runner's high for a good couple of hours and then see you later. The kids can have screen time. I'm going for a snooze. (laughs) I love, I love the non-food and drink post-run indulgences. That one is, that one's great. Oh, Heath, I seriously think we could talk all day, and I know we've only scratched the surface of all that you have to offer our audience, so we'll definitely have to have you back. But for now, I will just say a big, huge thank you for opening up about your story, for learning to love and embrace all parts of yourself, for your honesty, your vulnerability, your humor tonight. For continuing to give back to the sport of running in your own special way. And most of all, I want to thank you for your friendship. I feel so fortunate to have been by your side for part of the journey you shared with us tonight. And I can hardly wait for our next chance to run together again in person. Oh, thank you both to you so much. And thank you for starting this podcast and and putting it out there. It is a blessing to me, you know, on my commute in in the morning to listen to these powerful women who are showing the world what they can do and um, finding all of these inspiring people to, to interview. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, thanks, Heather. It's great to have you on. Thank you, guys. 